Hello and welcome to NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. I'm Simone Edgar Holmes, a summer intern at the New England Review and the host of this episode. I'm speaking to you from my home in Charlotte, Vermont, where I'm spending the summer reconnecting with my family and discovering new ways to fill the hours. Inspired by these experiences, I chose three pieces from recent issues of NER to reflect upon our current times. This episode brings you two poems from the latest issue of NER, number 41.2, and a non-fiction piece from NER 40.2. They examine the irregular passage of time, the meaning of home, and the curious bonds of family. They are all read by their authors, recorded in their own homes in Wyndham, England, Seattle, Washington, and Rochester, New York. Our first poet, who immigrated to England from Hungary in the 1950s, vividly describes his adopted country through its notorious weather, observing how it blends the seasons and shapes the day-to-day. Hello, I'm George Surtees, and this is my poem, English Rain. This rain, this unremitting stoical drench that defined everything by fully soaking it, was now home. It was like living in a trench, in a war that never started. Men were smoking it, in offices, through rain-blurred windows. They stood in melancholy doorways, mentally stroking it, as you might a sodden dog. Rain was a hood you wore in the street, and took off once at home. It was another name for England. It was the good you lived by for months on end that would come on time like buses that once arrived don't go. This was childhood in winter, the proper medium for study and squalor, into which you'd grow like a plant into soil, putting down your roots. Each shower was eternity, an endless flow of sustenance and drowning. Pull on your boots, wear your raincoat. It's winter now, forever. It is time, in one of its worn-out old suits, that glorified gentleman inclined to shiver and grumble. Meanwhile, you watch the children run through puddles, crossing streets and seeking cover, like something ending that has not begun. That was George Surtees reading his poem English Rain, published in the summer 2020 issue of the New England Review. This poem is part of a feature of 15 contemporary British poets. You can read more of George's poems and the entire feature on our website, nereview.com. George's first book of poems, The Slant Door, was joint winner of the Faber Prize in 1979. He has published many since then, including his collection Real, which won the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2004, and for which he has been twice shortlisted since. His memoir of his mother, The Photographer at 16, was published in 2019, 
and won the East Anglian Book Prize for Memoir and Biography. Our next poem illustrates a moment of connection in a summer meadow that stretches across the years. Hello, I'm Joni Stangland, and I'm going to read my poem, Parcel. When time stopped walking down the road, wind carried a wicker, then wind carried my heart across the field. So I stood at the fence, where the wind stole my voice, cantered it over the scratchy grass and bindweed, sent my voice to the colt sidling near than away, chirping, clucking, more hum than horse, more bird than girl, more strange than stranger. I tried to coax him close, close enough to stroke his flaxen neck. My sister scuffed the dust, my mother another name for patience. Time stalled, roughened under my hands on the top rail, as the wind took my heart at stole to gallop up the slope and over. That colt stayed out of reach, and when my heart came back, I boxed it up, left it twine-tied inside the city's grit and dust. Hear it, thump-thumping among the finches and tits as I let the morning glories trumpet and choke all that's leafing. Let forget-me-nots ramble across the mossy path let the dandelions carpet the yard, their seeds sweeping onto the long lawn like stars in an emerald night, stars to wish on. Here they light my small parcel, wind herding its flock across the sky's blue grass pasture. Here the stickery thicket and I lost in the thorns of it. Here the storms that swarm my days asking where is the door to hay growing gold the hour before dusk drops its wing? What will it take? A ticket? An hour? Another year? What will get that cardboard carton to a far acre? Where in good years I haul my heart and the rest of my body, both of us home in the clover, both us home astride a borrowed bay, wind running my fence lines. That was Joni Stangland reading her poem Parcel from NER 41.2. Joni is the author of several poetry collections, most recently The Scene You See, published by Ravenna Press in 2018. Her poems have also appeared in Boulevard, Prairie Schooner, Southern Review, and other journals. Her critical writing has appeared in Poetry Northwest. She holds an MFA from the Rainier Writing Workshop. In our final selection, a nonfiction piece, the author shows how her mother's book collection helped her understand her mother's own story and explores the difference between a house and a home.
My name is Angelique Stevens, and this essay, The Only Light We've Got, is from my memoir. This is an epigraph from James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues. For while the tale of how we suffer, and how we are delighted, and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. It's the only light we've got in all this darkness. It was a running joke between my sister, my stepdad, and me. When we can't afford to eat, we'll just sell some of your mother's books. My stepdad's Boston accent made it sound like your mother. He had been married to mom since we were babies, so he was just dad to us. When it was time to move yet again, the four of us would pack all of our belongings, including the furniture, onto one truckload before offloading into an apartment not much bigger than the truck. We moved almost a hundred times by the time I was out of the house. Each move, I double-stacked bookcases into tiny apartments, one on top of the other, then double-stacked the books onto the shelves while Mom and Dad went to the old apartment to clean up. Gina, my sister, was only ten months older than I. We were as close in age as two siblings could get without being twins. Move after move, we boxed, carried, unpacked, and reshelved hundreds of authors. Faulkner, Twain, Kafka, Miller, Crane, Baldwin, Swift, and Dante. My mother had a complete set of Hemingway novels. I always put them on the shelf by size, starting with The Old Man in the Sea and ending with For Whom the Bell Tolls. I held those books so many times their authors and titles were imprinted in my mind before I ever knew their importance. Red crayon covered the front of Faulkner's Go Down Moses. Inside the yellowed pages, my childlike scribbles superimposed over paragraph-long sentences. My fourth-grade apology, Sorry, Mom, it was an accident, replaced the torn-off cover of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. When I was 27, I hadn't been thinking about college. But a friend of mine told me it was possible, even then, in the midst of all that scraping and struggling. Gina had been arrested again for prostitution. Mom and Dad had been separated by then, but they still spent time together. The three of us lived in separate studio apartments within blocks of each other. Dad would call me up two days before payday and ask for money. Angie, he'd say in that Boston accent, your mother and I need some money for cigarettes and food. I'd scrounge up six dollars and change for them. Next week, I'd ask one of them for money, to buy a loaf of bread or a carton of eggs to last a couple days. There was no reason to think then that I could go to school. But my friend took me to the community college's registration office. Then he held my hand at the financial aid office. He told me I could figure it out, and if I couldn't, I had nothing to lose. I couldn't afford textbooks that first year. Whatever readings weren't at the library or online, I read in the aisles of the bookstore. In my modern American lit class, I was assigned a list of titles I hadn't thought about since I moved out of my parents' house. So one night, I bought a few groceries, and I boarded the bus to Mom's studio apartment. While waiting for dinner in my mother's tight-walled living room, I looked over at her bookcases. The ones I had stacked again and again over the years. 
The titles, tidy-wedged on polished shelves, stood as a testament to her love of books. They competed for space with the TV, a stereo, her brown plaid pull-out couch, and two twittering canaries in antique cages. Mom, did you really read all of those books? When I was in the state hospital, there's not much to do but read in the day room, she said as she flipped the chicken legs in the pan. In the back of my mind, a switch flipped. I had always thought those titles just filled space in Mom's shoddy memory. I never believed she'd actually read them. But now, I saw past all of her dark paranoia-induced rages, all of my childhood years, the tantrums at the grocery store because someone looked at her wrong, the repeating and rocking and swearing because she saw herself backed into a corner, the embarrassment I felt at school, on the bus, in my own living room. I picked up Kafka's The Trial, fingered the creases on the binder, turned the yellow pages, skeptical. What's this about? You can read it if you want. It's strange. This guy's on trial, and you never find out why. Maybe you can make sense of it, she said. I saw her reading it in the corner of her hospital ward as a teen her feet up over the side of a cushioned chair, other patients milling about, crayon drawings of golden moons and pink-gilded princesses on the wall, the sun shining in from a barred window behind her, her dreaming of boys and high school dances that she would never experience. She went into the hospital in eighth grade and did not come out until she met my father on the ward and got married at 26. They only lasted a couple years long enough to have my sister and me before he started drinking again and raging. She sought refuge at the AA meetings where she knew my father would not show up again. That's where she met my stepdad, John. I asked Mom if I could borrow Huckleberry Finn and the Red Badge of Courage. I located them on the shelves while she mashed potatoes. I saw the Hemingways in the same order I had arranged them as a child. I pulled out The Old Man in the Sea, and I held it like a gem. I had learned by then those titles were classics. Mom, have you read all these Hemingway books? Yeah. Do you want to take one? Don't start with that. It's about an old fisherman. I didn't like it. It's slow. Read A Farewell to Arms. It's a beautiful love story, and it has a young hunk in it. I took them both. Later that week, I went to the park across the street from my own tight-walled studio. I had a few hours to breathe some air and sit in the sun after work. Though I didn't need it for school, I read The Old Man in the Sea in one sitting. The next week, I read A Farewell to Arms. Later, I read Kafka, Miller, Wolfe, and Baldwin. In class, we went over that beautiful opening in the first paragraph of James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues. The word it is repeated six times. At first, the it refers to the story in the newspaper where the narrator learns his brother Sonny was arrested for heroin. But then, sentence by sentence, the it changes. It becomes representative of the struggle the brothers experience, of all things visible and invisible, of black and white. Then the it evolves into something even larger as it dangles in the swimming lights of the subway car and in the faces and the bodies of the people. By the end of the paragraph, 
he sees the it in his own face, trapped in the darkness which roared outside. I couldn't stop thinking about that physical image, the narrator seeing his own reflection in the subway window, about how both the light and that backdrop of darkness outside were necessary in order for him to reflect upon his own image, his own life, and what it meant to him. By the time I was in grad school, something triggered mom's paranoia again, and she was evicted from her apartment. It had started with mom calling 911 daily about some threat in her apartment. Other times, it was her neighbors who called 911 on her. It got to the 911 operators had my number on file whenever a call came in from my mother's address. One hot August night, the operator called about mom on her front porch, swearing and threatening people who walked by. We wanted to call you first to see if you can calm her down. If not, we'll have to mental health arrest her, the operator said. When I arrived at the apartment, it was well after midnight. She was on her front porch waving a frantic fist. Her nipples poked through a sheer nightgown. Sweat dripped down her red face as she screamed. Neighbors sat theater-style sneering on their porches across the street. Fuck you, motherfuckers. I'll roll up the sky on you. Who the fuck do you think you are? Go ahead. Call the motherfucking police. I'll tell them how you threatened me. Mom, stop. I grabbed hold of her clammy arms and forced her inside the house and up the stairs. She smelled of cigarettes and diarrhea. Her lunatic repeating unnerved me that late at night. All those people staring at us? Those motherfuckers, who do they think they are? He told me he would roll up the sky. Roll up the fucking sky. I don't care if I get arrested, Angie. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Mom, I didn't hear them say anything. You're the one screaming. I was raging inside. Shut the fuck up. Nobody is coming after you, I wanted to say. But instead, I grabbed a towel and I threw it at her. Jesus, Mom, you've got to find a way to calm down. No one is going to do anything to you. Wipe your face. I leaned against the chair and I mumbled, roll up the sky, what does that even mean? Angie, I heard them, I heard them, I heard them. They were on the other side of that bedroom wall, screaming, I'll roll up the world. She wailed my name like a child's whine, stretching out the second syllable. Her mad pacing back and forth across the tiny living room was so unnatural, it made me cringe. There's nothing out there, Mom. It's an outside wall of a second floor. I took her by the arm, and I walked her to her chair, and I made her sit. I've got to work tomorrow. I can't be coming over here at all hours of the night. You need to stay calm. Then I kissed her on the cheek, and I walked out. On the stairs, in a whisper, I spat. God, I fucking hate After the eviction notice two weeks later, I found her another apartment. I borrowed a truck and I asked my friend JJ to help. JJ had a patience for my mother that I could not for the life of me summon. In the past, mom had always seemed to know when her sickness meant she couldn't decipher reality anymore 
and it was time to admit herself to the psych center. I guess I thought she would get better on her own, or she'd just admit herself when she was ready, but maybe I had been wrong all those years. Maybe it was always Dad who had made the decision. The day that JJ and I were supposed to move Mom, we tried to be strategic, transfer Mom and enough comfortable things in the first trip to the new apartment so that she wouldn't bother us with her tirades while we worked. She smelled like she hadn't showered in days, vagina, urine, and smoke seeped through her clothes. I wanted to put a plastic bag on the seat before she got into the truck. We decided to bring her TV, some food, a couch, a table, all of her bath stuff, and clean clothes so she could take a shower while we moved another load. I put on a pot of coffee, and JJ hung a new shower curtain. We plugged in the TV and set up the couch and table across from it. And as bare as it was, with the coffee going and the television on, it felt like a home. We had left her in the shower so we could move another load. JJ and I were already halfway through packing a second load when we heard the screaming outside. Mom's faint voice coming from down the road stopped us both. JJ and I looked at each other and ran down the stairs. Outside we heard her, Angie! Oh, God! she yelled. She was running toward us from her new apartment, less than a block away, naked, holding a small towel by its corner, barely covering a breast. I heard a neighbor whisper, Oh, my God, as we ran to meet her. JJ on one side, me on the other. We held that little towel in front of her as we rushed to bring her up the porch and the stairs. Oh, God, oh, God, thank God you're safe, Angie, she cried. Mom, of course I'm safe. What did you think happened? I heard the thunder when I was in the shower, and I could have sworn someone shot you. I thought someone was shooting you, Angie. Later, when the police came to take her, she wasn't having any of it. She pleaded with me not to send her away. The cops held her arms. She kicked and screamed, let go of me. It's okay, Mom. I'll pack up some books for you and some clothes. I'll come visit. It will get better, I said. Didn't know that for sure. I wasn't seeing things clearly. I don't think I would have called 911 that day. It was JJ who said it was time to call the police. I might have otherwise just tried to wait it out. Let mom get mental health arrested by someone else when I wasn't around. I had never had to be the one to make that call before. In graduate school, I read 20 books a semester. I took a class called Readers as Writers, where we studied postmodernism. I fell in love with Dave Eggers, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. There's the scene where he throws his mother's ashes into the ocean, and it's supposed to be reverent and melancholy, but he's working against the wind, and the ashes fly back into his face and in his mouth, and he's cursing himself for spitting out his mother. I read that scene in tears, in prayer style, knees on the floor, the book held open in my hand in my one-room studio. I saw my mom in her years in the asylum, all of her stories setting fire to her maintenance closet because of her doctor wouldn't reciprocate her love, feeling the electrodes pulse against her temples as a teenager, and even later, falling in love with my biological father, Reggie, who was also on the ward for alcoholism. 
both of them getting discharged to start a new life outside those walls. I imagined her packing into boxes for the first time the books that lined her hospital room. They were the only thing she could call her own. That collection grew as the years passed until it dominated everything else in our home, until it became the only consistency in our lives. And I realized then that carrying her books all those years had only made me stronger. My mother died the year I started graduate school. With an oxygen line in her nose, she lit a cigarette. The line caught fire and burned everything in its past, from the living room where she sat all the way along the floor to her bedroom, where the fire stopped at that failsafe on the oxygen tank. She tamped the growing fire down with a towel while crawling on her knees from room to room, but she was too slow. The smoke filled her lungs, and she passed out just after she had put the fire out. She had a heart attack when she arrived at the hospital. Gina sobered up for the weeks after my mother's death. The crackpipe blisters on her fingers healed, and she seemed normal for a while. We drove together to Mom's apartment the day we received the ashes. Most of my mother's belongings went to the curb. We left the big furniture behind. Neither of us had room, so we told the maintenance man to give it away. I brought plastic totes for the things we would keep, our old pictures of our grandmother who died in a fireworks factory when our mother was eight months old, our mother's wedding band with a little lightning bolt on it, a few pictures of us when we were girls, the crystal glasses our mother had saved for years to buy and then left preserved in boxes for most of our lives, that red and white blanket she crocheted, and her books. Gina walked across the street to get us hamburgers for lunch and I sat on the floor in front of the bookshelves and wept. Most of the books were damaged beyond repair. Some were over 50 years old. I put those in the recycle bin for the curb. Then I found Salinger's catcher in the rye. I wiped off the dust and placed it neatly into an empty box. I cleaned off the Hemingways one at a time, starting with the old man in the sea and ending with for whom the bell tolls and packed them away into the box too. Then Faulkner, Twain, Kafka, Miller, Crane, Baldwin, Swift, and Dante. Later that afternoon, I lugged that box up the stairs to my own tiny studio and I put it in the living room where the sun's rays slanted across the carpet. I opened the box and beginning with the old man in the sea, I placed the books on the shelves one by one next to my own collection. That was The Only Light We've Got, written and read by Angelique Stevens. It was originally published in the summer 2019 issue of the New England Review. Angelique's nonfiction can be found in Booth Magazine, Cleaver, Chattahoochee Review, and a number of anthologies. She holds an MFA from Bennington College and finds her inspiration in wandering, being in places that push the boundaries of comfort, experience, knowledge, and hunger. This essay is featured in the anthology Apple Tree, Writers on Their Parents, which was published by University of Nebraska Press in 2019. 
If you want to learn more about the writing you heard today, head to our website, nereview.com, where you can find author interviews, events, and more. We're also on Twitter. Check us out at nerweb. And if you like what you heard, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to help more people find the show. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was edited and produced by me, Simone Edgar Holmes, Middlebury College class of 2020.5. If you have a favorite piece from the magazine you would like to hear read out loud, email us at nereview at middlebury.edu. And while you're at it, share this episode with your family and friends. I'm Simone Edgar Holmes, and you've been listening to NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.